Hi, I'm Jelani Blake, and you're listening to Caesar Voices, a podcast series focused on bringing research closer to you. This series is brought to you by the Journal of Caribbean Environmental Sciences and Renewable Energy, or CESA, which is probably more familiar to most of you. Each episode, we'll hear from some of the leading Caribbean environmental experts who'll be helping us to better understand what's happening in our region. We'll be getting a summary from the people on the front lines, the heroes doing the heavy lifting in terms of searching for solutions to some of our most pressing environmental problems. If you'd like to give suggestions, have your research featured, or sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices, use the links in the accompanying description to learn more. I'm your host, Jelani Blake, and I've never actually been involved in the environmental sciences. Unless you count a short stint as president of the Environmental Awareness Club back in prep school. Lasted all of one school year. <laughs> really though. I just have a first degree in psychology, and I actually do voiceover for a living. If my voice sounds familiar to you, then you might have heard it in a TV or radio commercial. But that doesn't stop me from finding Caesar's research fascinating. And I think you'll agree with me that those of us living in places like the Caribbean should be trying to learn as much as we can about the ways in which climate change is affecting our lives and directing our future. That's why we're doing this podcast series, Caesar Voices. So I hope you'll join me as we explore the world of environmental sciences and renewable energy. For our extended two-part inaugural episode, we'll be taking a look at research efforts over the course of the past year. Where did we leave 2018 and what can we expect moving into 2019? Today in part one, we'll be hearing from Professor Michael Taylor about the Caribbean's connection to the recent special report on 1.5 degrees released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC for short. And renewable energy expert Dr. Randy Kuhn Kuhn will be giving us a review of recent developments regarding the way we power our region. We'll also be getting to know a little bit about one of our generous donors, Jessica Dixon, who works for UNICEF and lives all the way in Jordan. So, without further ado, let's get into it. You may have heard about the latest IPCC special report. It's widely referred to as the SR-15, and it stresses the urgency of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. The report also describes a drastic increase in global effort required to reach that goal and the consequences facing us all if we don't get our act together in the next 12 years. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale. Our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. That was nature's spokesperson himself, Sir David Attenborough, addressing delegates at the recent UN Climate Change Conference in Katowice, Poland. Countries in the Caribbean are among those particularly vulnerable to those consequences. And we're already seeing the science, so it makes perfect sense that we actually had a lot to do with the SR-15's production. We sat down with Professor Michael Taylor, a Jamaican climate change expert and a man well positioned to tell us more. I, you know, was very fortunate to be asked to be one of the coordinating lead authors for one of the chapters in the report, Chapter 3, which looks on impacts on both the natural and human systems. And it was a great experience. Now, before even getting to the details, I had to ask a burning question on most of our minds. 
What can we as regular individuals do to support the fight against climate change? A couple of things, but I would start up by saying advocacy. We as the ordinary person must hold our governments to the understanding that, you know, climate change has to be factored in to, for example, development planning. The average person has a voice. You know, that voice can do a lot. Speak to those who aren't yet so convinced or who aren't seeing the climate change realities. Think of your energy usage, you know. Can we be more efficient in our energy usage? Can we replace the fossil fuel sources if we have the wherewithal to do it? Think about how you treat waste. Can we be more efficient there? Think about our green spaces, you know. In the end, one of the best removal technologies for carbon dioxide is a tree. You know, carbon dioxide removal will probably be a part of the global future. Can we contribute it there? Being a good environmental partner is a, is a good thing for the climate change fight. So we can look at our life and how we live our lives, and, and there's a lot that we can do in addition to the advocacy and the education. It seems we can all do our part, even by just raising our voices. And according to Professor Taylor, this is exactly why there even is a 1.5 degree goal. It might be useful to give a little background to the special report. Now, it's called a 1.5 special report because 1.5 degrees is a special kind of global target in terms of global warming. So the Caribbean and the small island states and some of the least developed states have argued and argued really strongly that when you take global warming and you compare the level of warming we are at now to where we were at the pre-industrial stage, we cannot reach more than one and a half degrees or 1.5 degrees by the end of this current century compared to where we were during pre-industrial times. Now, you want to put that in context that we have already seen one degree of warming. So they're arguing no more than 0.5 degree more warming by the end of this century. The rest of the world, through the Paris Agreement, kind of put two degrees on the table instead of 1.5. And the Caribbean argued no, 1.5 is the goal. And so the IPCC decided to do a special report through the lobbying of, you know, the Caribbean and and the least developed countries and the other small island developing states to do a special report on the 1.5 target. You know, looking on the state of the science, seeing if they can answer a number of questions. Is 1.5 possible? You know, what will happen to the world at 1.5 degrees? Is 1.5 degrees synergistic with the sustainable development goals? You know, can we actually attain it? Those kinds of questions. So they produce a special report, very formidable report, mind you, um, 91 authors, over 100 other contributing authors, 6,000 cited references, 42,000 expert comments. But as of now, represents the kind of state of the science on climate change and, and 1.5 degrees. How's that for advocacy? Researchers from our small parts of the world were able to shift the global conversation on climate change and push the IPCC to issue its most important special report to date. And we didn't stop there. In terms of the Caribbean, through the research group that I, I run here at the University of the West Indies, which is called the Climate Studies Group, MONA, we coordinate, you know, some of the climate research agenda across the Caribbean region in, in conjunction with partners like in Cuba, Institute of the Meteorology, or INSMEC, um, with partners in Suriname, Anton Beckham, University of Suriname, with partners in 
in Belize, the five C's, in the other UWI campuses. And we had gotten together and said, well, if the IPCC is going to produce this report, this report was really called for by the Caribbean, then we need to make sure we produce some science that can go into the report and represent what the state of the Caribbean would be like at 1.5 degrees. It isn't only that we're calling for the report, but we're also making sure that we contribute good science towards the report. The report is also significant for us because we managed to produce quite a bit of research, actually, that also ha has gone into influencing the report. So Caribbean research contributed greatly. But at the end of the day, the SR15 represents a huge international effort. Now imagine an urgent report by the IPCC, backed up by hard evidence from researchers all across the globe, and at least one world leader, who I won't name, completely dismisses it, even in the face of his administration's own supporting research. This raised an important question. Are our leaders in the Caribbean getting the message? Particularly coming out of last year, 2017, when we saw, you know, these three Category 5 hurricanes, Irma, Maria, Jose, pass through the, the region, and coming out of other climatic events, you know, even if for those islands that weren't impacted by those hurricanes. We have seen a number of really intense rainfall and flooding events this year. And this came at the end of a couple months of drought. I think there's a very strong awareness now within the Caribbean region of the impact of climate change, the impact of climate change on economies, on quality of life, on development goals, and, you know. I think the governments of our region are very attuned to the fact that, listen, this climate change thing is real and it is going to impact us. I guess at the end of the day, we don't really have the luxury of dismissing climate change in the Caribbean. But what are we doing about it? Where are we in terms of mitigation? I think it varies across the region, meaning there are some countries that are trying to what we call mainstream climate into development plans. And there are other countries that, for various reasons, some of them being resource driven, some of them being you know, capacity are, are lagging behind. We have certain regional entities that are now advocating for the world to step up with the kind of financing that we need to make sure that as a Caribbean, we're resilient to climate change. Things like the Green Climate Fund, the Adaptation Fund, we have to be vigilant and make sure that they are resourced and then that as a Caribbean region, we can access from them. But we must not sit down and just wait there are things that we can do even in the course of normal, everyday planning that can help build our resilience, and we should go after those first, you know, almost a low-hanging fruit. We can make sure that zoning is in place for where you can put down a building or where you can, you can live, and then we can enforce those things. That's a climate change action, even if you, you didn't realize it. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, I can imagine. <laughs> right, you know, protection of certain species that are endangered, you know, that's a climate change action. But the Caribbean does have an awareness, and I think, you know, um, that's, that's a good thing. So we're aware of the situation in the Caribbean, and for the most part, we're working towards change. But Professor Taylor believes there's one particularly important area in need of way more attention. One of the things we really have to do in the Caribbean region is pay attention to scientific research. 
in a real sense, our ability to make the points that we have been making on the global stage and to keep up with the global climate conversation has been driven by the fact that we have been doing research and good research, climate research in the Caribbean region. Now we know do near enough if climate impacts all of life, then really we need the models that look on climate and our financial sector, climate and the growing of certain crops. We need a lot more research because the research will generally be contextual, meaning that it's research related to our state and we're not depending on somebody else to do research and then we try to adapt that research. We need research that will set boundaries and parameters for the actions that we, that we want. So research has gotten us this far, but we really do need a significant investment in scientific research. Just making a big pitch there for support of scientific research. Oh man, that's, that's a very strong point. I mean, that's our ammunition, right? That's, that's how it, it we is. amplify our voice in the conversation. That's right, you know, and that's how we say it. It's more than us just speaking, but we have the scientific evidence to, like, to back it up, right. to back up what we are saying. The professor is absolutely right. In order to take the right steps in navigating this climate change predicament, research is key. Of course, we understand this very clearly at CESAR, since, well, it's the reason behind everything we're trying to do. In the face of climate change, something still needs to keep the Caribbean moving forward. Movement requires energy, but our region has long relied on dirty, inefficient sources of power that have far too often left us literally in the dark. Sources that seem best suited to the task of propelling us ever closer to the bleak future outlined in the SR-15. Fossil fuels cost more than what we pay at the pump and impacts our environments in many ways. These impacts include global warming, air quality deterioration, oil spills and acid rain. It's also projected that fossil fuel resources will be depleted within the next 50 to 100 years. Biomass and nuclear energy also have similar issues. We need a solution relatively fast and luckily we have one. Renewable energy comes from resources which naturally replenish in our lifetime, whereas fossil fuels are a one-time use resource in the human timescale. Resources for renewable energy include sunlight, wind, rain, tides, waves and geothermal heat. The best part is that we don't need to compromise our planet to harness it, nor do we have to rely on other nations for these resources, which history has shown to be a contributor to war, famine and political instability. That actually came from an animated explainer video by visual designer Dane Bliss. It was meant to showcase his design skills, but it still makes a pretty strong case for the use of renewable energy over fossil fuels. Luckily, our region is rich in promising sources of carbon-free energy. But how close are we to tapping into that potential? We spoke to renewable energy expert Dr. Randy Kuhn-Kuhn to find out. Major forms of renewable energy across the Caribbean are solar, wind, hydropower, geothermal energy. These are the four major players. There are others, ocean energy in terms of your tides, biomass energy, but in terms of the numbers, these four normally stand out. Jamaica leads in terms of solar energy and in terms of its most recent development, Content Solar Farm, which has a 20 megawatt solar park. 
there exists a maximum of just around 800 megawatts of untapped wind energy potential throughout the Caribbean, except for Jamaica, which once again leads the way for maximum potential of around 1,313 megawatts and having a 34% utilization of what's been installed. Whenever we hear hydropower, the islands that notably come to our mind will be Belize and Jamaica, because collectively they account for around 126 megawatts of potential power. Uh, overall, they have an 82% utilization. Jamaica is on track to reaching very close to that 100% in terms of its hydro potential. We are primed in the Caribbean for geothermal energy. We're a chain of young volcanic islands, and they all attribute to a very large value that's um, 3,770 megawatts of potential power. Then you can think about geothermal energy as heat mining, basically. For any of our listeners who may be feeling lost, we use megawatts to measure energy output. For context, one megawatt can run more than 600 homes. So you know there's a lot of renewable energy in the Caribbean. So what exactly is keeping us from making a full transition? So this is where policies and government incentives, all those ideas come into play. The technology aspect in terms of renewable energies, it is there. The source, material, human resources, that's all part of it. So why don't we transition? Firstly, uncertainty in energy prices and a lack of energy diversification. When sitting islands, they're more energy focused on one revenue stream in terms of planning. We're also going to have replacement of decommissioned base load system. We don't always think about these aspects, but if renewable energy are to come into stream, how are we going to phase them into the existing uh, energy drivers for each Caribbean island? And finally, there are socioeconomic and environmental challenges. But a lot of cases also arise in terms of incentive programs for companies. There's still a uh, tax on any uh, parts and stuff that may be needed that must be paid throughout the Caribbean. So it's not just a high upfront cost in terms of these renewable energy projects, it's uh, this percentage that must be paid. If these programs can be put into place in terms of lowering these rates, it can act to encourage small businesses to have these installed systems. It can sometimes seem like such a simple matter ditch the fossil fuels, and just use the abundant natural resources in the Caribbean. But as Dr. Kun Kun pointed out, there are always factors that must be considered. Which brings me to something that always comes to mind when I think about climate change and the need to lower emissions. Transportation. It occurs to me, especially when I'm on the road, looking around at all the other vehicles. Is this something we're looking at in the Caribbean? I had to ask. It is great to have electric vehicles which will drastically reduce your carbon footprint as a nation. But the next point is the implementation of charging stations to have these mechanisms in place to have a functional electric vehicle drive. And more so, where is the energy going to be coming from at these charging stations? Because we cannot be totally green if we're still using diesel-generated systems to have electricity produced and then stored at one point for an electric vehicle to come. I see that there's a mega power electric vehicle project in Barbados, and it's combining electric vehicles with solar powered charging stations. The same point that I'm making here, and it has the power to transform the entire sector, but it's a multifaceted approach. This is where information needs to be sent out to 
the police sector, the firemen, because taking out a fire from an electric vehicle is different from your normal car crash. You need to know exactly where these uh, high voltage loop systems are located in the vehicle when dealing with those situations. So implementation, yes, it is great to have them, but there are other aspects that must be taken into place so that it's 100% functional at the end of the day. I guess when it comes to carbon-free transportation, there's more than meets the eye, if I may borrow a phrase from a famous franchise. And I suppose the same could be said about the overall process of transitioning to carbon-free energy as a region. We have the potential, and we are certainly on our way, but it seems we still have quite a few things to figure out before we can make that final jump. For any of our listeners who might be wondering, CESA is an open-access academic journal. It's really much more than that, though. CESA is an initiative. It's a resource designed to modernize and widen access to important research coming out of the Caribbean to a range of different platforms, including its Edu app, its Youth Association Network, and, well, this podcast series, CESA Voices. Of course, none of this is cheap. CESA would barely be able to function without donations from generous individuals all across the globe. Jessica Dixon is one of these donors. She's originally from the UK, but is currently living in Jordan, where she works for UNICEF as a reports officer. We recently got to know a little bit more about Jessica and the path that led her to the UN. So I did a master's in violence, conflict and development because I was really interested in countries in conflict and I wanted to work internationally. Following that, I started working for an NGO. It's a London-based organisation, but it had lots of different offices around the world and it was a peace-building organisation. As I was still based in London, although I travelled a bit with them, I didn't travel a huge amount. The reason why I had studied my master's was so that I could live abroad and live in different places and actually be a bit more connected to people from other cultures. So I started looking for positions abroad and I found a position in Bolivia that interested me. And so I applied for it. It was with UNICEF and I was successful. Eventually, Jessica's path carried her all the way to the Middle East. So a year ago, I moved to Oman and I joined UNICEF Yemen. So I work for the Yemen country office, but because of the security situation, the UN has a cap on the number of international staff that it lets into the country at one time so that it can evacuate all of the staff if necessary. I've managed to go to Yemen once during that time. So I spent the whole of September in Yemen, which was a really good experience. We also learned a bit about the experiences that compelled Jessica to donate to Caesar's cards. So I found out about Caesar through a friend posting something on social media. He sort of announced the initiative and explained that they were looking for support. And it really caught my attention for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I thought it was really good that Caesar was promoting academics from the Caribbean to write about the Caribbean for those issues. I'm used to reading lots of policy papers and articles written by people who aren't from the actual place. And so promoting national analysis on issues, I think, is really, really important. And then another reason why it caught my attention is because climate change is an issue that I feel quite strongly about. And I just think it's something that has been systematically ignored by politicians, particularly in the Western world um, and in the developing world. And no one's paying enough attention to the facts. Sadly, I think the people who are feeling the most effect from climate change at the moment are people in the developing world. For example, when I was living in Bolivia, the country was severely affected by droughts and lots of flooding as well that was having a really big impact on the population. 
people in the developed world, I mean, obviously, you know, they're having heat waves during the summer um, and it's having a small impact already, but not a huge impact yet. But it is going to happen very soon, I think. And people, I, I feel, are turning a blind eye to this. So promoting a sort of academic journal about renewable energy, um, I think, is really important at the moment. It's really encouraging to know that someone so far away can see the importance of what CESA is trying to do. If any of our listeners would like to help us promote Caribbean research, just click the link in the accompanying description to visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations, and join our monthly donor club. Well, folks, that's all we have for you in part one of our very first episode of Caesar Voices, the podcast series focused on bringing research closer to you. I'd like to thank our guests for taking part, and of course, you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope you'll join us for part two. We'd love to make this a regular podcast, but we can't do it without your help. So I'm just reminding our listeners once again that you can click the link in the accompanying description to visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations, where you can join the monthly donor club. If you'd like to be an official sponsor of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, please follow the corporate link in the description to learn more.